Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yes, it's summer. Yes, it's supposed to be hot, but it has never been like this. The lead starts right now. Extreme heat alerts in 21 countries in Europe and more than 100 million people in the U.S. Also in danger zones, disasters sparked by the climate crisis now threatening your travel, your food supply, and quite literally even your life. Plus, while moving to ban abortion outright, one state is leaving lower-income pregnant women with few resources, little support, and almost nowhere to turn. And... A theme park apology after a costumed character appeared to snub two little black girls. The mother's response right here on CNN as the park calls the incident a misunderstanding. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start in our Earth Matters series, Half of Humanity is in a Climate Danger Zone. That is the message today. From the very top of the United Nations and the record temperatures many of you are feeling right now are are just a symptom. Multiple heat waves across the globe are creating a series of crises. Just look at this video from London, a row of houses on fire, officials say because of the heat. The London Fire Brigade says they have never seen weather-related incidents, quote, on this scale before. In Spain, in France, in Italy. Wildfire spreading rapidly, the flames on top of an extreme drought in Italy, destroying crops, which could cut off a source of food this fall. In major cities, travel disrupted, trains and flights canceled over and over due to the heat and causing a global ripple effect. In Portugal, Reuters is now reporting that hundreds have died because of the soaring temperatures. There are, of course, extreme heat issues here in the United States as well. Dallas and Oklahoma City reached 109 degrees today. Again, this is a global problem. Just look at the heat map. Mexico, Central America, Brazil, saturated in red. Europe, Northern Africa, and the Middle East in an even deeper shade of red. India and parts of the Southeast Pacific are in orange. All of those colors, signs of crippling and dangerous heat. This heat devastation is evidence, as if you need more of it, that climate change is here and is a crisis, what scientists and activists have been warning about for decades. We knew these temperatures were coming. We might not have known 2022, but we knew they were coming. What we are experiencing right now is a crisis. A crisis there are not 60 votes in the U.S. Senate to try to even remotely address. From London to Washington, D.C., and throughout the U.S., CNN has teams positioned around the world to cover these devastating temperatures. Let's start with CNN's Lucy Kafanov, who's in Denver and is tracking how the city and much of the U.S. is trying to cope with this blistering heat. 100 million Americans baking under heat alerts that cover 20 states. The plains from the Dakotas down to Texas getting the worst of it. Forecast highs of 110, feeling as high as 115. 
The extreme heat fueling fires in Texas. This one west of Fort Worth burned more than 500 acres and damaged some buildings. Just to the south, the Chalk Mountain fire tripled in size overnight, burning more than 4,000 acres. The searing temperatures in Texas straining the power grid. ERCOT, which operates most of the state's power, reporting more than 30 days of record use since May. It's the same power system that failed in polar opposite weather the winter of 2021. I'm less concerned about a, a, a failure. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of differences between this event and Winter Storm Yuri. After that event, we purchased a number of mobile HVAC systems. So if, if we do start losing power and we have folks that are that are using one of our cooling centers, we can get there quickly and, and start supplying them with cold air. In Paris, Arkansas, storms knocked out power, leaving residents to fight the heat without air conditioning. Even for those who live and work in the heat, it could be extremely dangerous. Watch as this UPS worker collapses on the front porch in Scottsdale, Arizona, while delivering a package. The company says he's okay. Experts say if you must be in the heat, hydrate before it's too late. It only takes a matter of minutes, and by the time that your, your body stops sweating, you're getting nauseous, you're getting lightheaded, you're behind the curve. Heat is the number one cause of weather deaths in the U.S., and as much of the northern hemisphere experiences similar record heat, experts say climate change can't be ignored. We're talking about weather events that we probably would have expected to see a decade or two down the line, but what's more striking than that, I think, is how poorly we're preparing and adapting, because we knew these temperatures were coming. As the nation's midsection seeks relief, much of the East Coast is up next. Boston declaring a heat emergency today through at least Thursday. By tomorrow, New York and Philadelphia forecast to join Boston with temps in the 90s. Add in the humidity and it could feel like 100 degrees for tens of millions of people. And even before today, it's already been a sweltering summer that shattered heat records across the U.S. And unfortunately, not much relief coming in the coming days. The Climate Prediction Center forecasts above average dangerous temperatures will prevail through most of next week for much of the lower 48 states. Jake. Lucy Kavanaugh in Denver. Thank you so much. Today was the hottest day ever recorded over most of Western Europe. Twenty one countries in Europe under a heat alert. With temperatures reaching 100 degrees in many places, CNN's Bianca Nobilo is in London, where the city who had prior to 2019 had only experienced 100 degree heat once is now seeing triple digit temperatures annually. London commuters made it through the UK's hottest ever night and braced for its hottest ever day. For the first time since records began, temperatures here soared above 40 degrees Celsius or 104 Fahrenheit. It's the only time authorities have issued a red warning for extreme heat. Here in the UK, we're used to treating a hot spell as a chance to go and play in the sun. This is not that sort of weather. It's the sort of weather that leads to death, the government is warning. Police say at least three teenagers have drowned after getting into rivers and ponds to cool off. Airport runways are melting. Wheat is being harvested early and dry fields are vulnerable to fire. London's fire brigade declared a major incident on Tuesday because of a, quote, huge surge in fires across the capital. The sun is even buckling train tracks, leading to mass cancellations. For a country more used to complaining about rainy summers where air conditioning at home is rare, it may be the new normal infrastructure, much of which was built from the Victorian times, just wasn't built to withstand this type of uh, temperature. And it will be many years before we can uh, 
replace uh, infrastructure with, with the kind of infrastructure that could because the temperatures are just so extreme. Nine of the ten hottest British days have been recorded since 1990. The British government estimates these extreme temperatures have been made ten times more likely by humans' impact. The government is doing nothing and, and, and in fact the world is doing nothing. I mean the world is burning and we are doing nothing about it. We've never had this kind of heat, so why would we be prepared? I think we just have to adapt, don't we? Our homes have to change, our way of life has to change. The change may be necessary even in countries more accustomed to extreme summers. Wildfires are raging across southern Europe, from Spain to France to Portugal, forcing tens of thousands to evacuate their homes. People are growing desperate. In Spain's northwest Zamora region, a man drives an excavator across burning fields in a desperate attempt to dig a trench and safeguard his town. Within seconds, flames engulf the machine. He dives for safety, running with the clothes singed off his back. The EU now says that nearly half of Europe, including the UK, is at risk of drought. Record temperatures were set across western France this week. Ireland was the hottest in a century, and Germany is next, as south to north Europe sizzles. Jake, there were so many emergencies in London today that the London Fire Brigade ran out of all their fire engines. And I'm at the site of one of those fires where I've seen in the last couple of minutes another six fire engines go behind me, where they're still struggling to contain a fire which is burning over around 100 acres. I've been speaking to people here who've lost their homes, who are trying to rescue their animals, who never imagined that in this country they would be witnessing this kind of fire and this kind of heat. But luckily, in the last few moments, finally some respite because it's just started to feel some droplets of rain. All right, Bianca Nobila in London, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Taking action after West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin torpedoed President Biden's chances of passing climate provisions in Congress, Biden said he's not going to back down. The president is now considering taking executive action this week to try to address the climate crisis. MJ Lee is at the White House right now. MJ, tomorrow President Biden is traveling to Massachusetts. We're told he's going to deliver remarks on the climate crisis. Do you know specifically what he's planning to address? Well, Jake, first of all, this is, of course, not an unfamiliar position for the president to be in, to meet resistance on a top legislative priority on Capitol Hill, and then having to really resort to executive actions. All of this, uh, of course, after Senator Manchin indicating over the weekend that he is a no-go, at least for the time being, on a climate legislation that Democrats have been working on for weeks because he's worried about uh, inflation. Now, the White House's public posturing for the time being is that they're keeping their eyes forward, that if legislation is not going to come together, then the president is going to take executive actions. Now, you mentioned that the president is going to be traveling to Massachusetts tomorrow. We expect him to appear at a former coal plant that is being transformed into a wind energy farm. We do expect that he could talk about some of these executive actions that he is considering, for, but for the time being, the White House has not released any details or a firm timeline for when he wants to make those announcements. Jake. What do we know uh, about the talk in Washington that the president is considering declaring a national climate emergency. 
Well, the White House is basically saying that no option is off the table, that everything is on the table for now to deal with climate change. But we don't expect that this is going to be the announcement that we hear uh, from the president in Massachusetts tomorrow. Uh, but basically what it would do is allow the federal government uh, to have more resources, to have more leeway to deal with climate change related issues. So certainly this is just one way in which the federal government and the executive branch could take action in lieu of Congress not being able to reach a deal. Uh, we know that the pressure is only going to grow after uh, talks with Senator Manchin basically broke down uh, over this weekend, Jake. All right, MJ Lee, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You have likely noticed gas prices are dropping, but for how long and how far will they drop? And could the drop help bring down other sky-high prices during this era of inflation? I'm going to talk to a senior White House aide who's advising President Biden next. And preemptive strike, President Biden's new actions to get ahead of another country that may try to take another American hostage. Why some families of those already detained call his efforts a distraction. Stay with us. In our money lead now, despite the sweltering heat, gas prices are cooling off a bit. The advertised price at most U.S. gas stations is just barely under the $4 mark. Nearly 20% show $3.99 a gallon right now, according to a U.S. Gas analysis. CNN's Pete Montine is at a gas station in northern Virginia for us right now. Pete, should drivers worry that prices might spike again? Well, the relief might only be temporary, according to top experts, Jake, even though the drops have been pretty dramatic. 17 states have seen their gas prices fall by about 50 cents in the last month. That includes here in Virginia, 4.55 at this station in Alexandria. That is above the national average, which is now $4.50. We've seen it slip two cents overnight, according to AAA. Think about where we were a month ago. The national average for a gallon of regular was $4.98, and gas really peaked on June 14th at $5.02. Now, according to GasBuddy, the top price you will see in the most stations nationwide, 24,000 stations nationwide, the most common price is $3.99 now. What is happening here, the reason for all of this, is that the price of crude is now going down because there is global recession fears out there even still, and that has caused fears to go up that demand for gas could crater. I want you to listen now to drivers who are fine with the relief in the short term. Right now, it's ridiculous at this time of the moment, and my husband being a truck driver, so right now he's paying like at least six, seven hundred dollars a gallon, you know, you know, traveling back and forth. I'm glad the gas went down because it's making people feel a whole lot better. How much lower do you want it to go? I'll say probably in the two dollars range. About, about, you know, 250 275 I think people will be satisfied. Unlikely we will see 250 or 275 Remember, it was 317 on average a year ago. Top expert Tom Closa says this is more like an intermission in an Italian opera. We may see the softening of relief here by the end of this week, maybe around 439 a gallon, according to Gas Buddy. Jake? All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. I want to bring in Gene Sperling. He's a senior advisor to President Biden. Uh, Gene, thanks for joining us. Um, your White House colleague, Jared Bernstein, called the drop in gas prices one of the fastest declines in a decade. Do you expect prices for items such as groceries or rent to also go down? Well, I, I think you had an excellent report there. I think the one thing at the moment which looks hopeful is that actually, Jake, 
oil prices have dropped 20 percent and the gas prices, as we've seen, have dropped about 10 percent, about 52 cents. And as your as as you your report just showed, about 25,000 are actually under four dollars. The fact that it, the gas prices have still not come down the full 20 percent that that oil prices have at least would give some, I think, positive reason to believe that this would continue. I also think that if if Congress would uh, and the states would take seriously the president's call to have a federal tax holiday on both federal and state taxes, that would bring down another 50 cents. And then I think you could really see uh, uh, most Americans dealing for the rest of the summer with uh, with gas prices below four, below $4. We certainly hope this will have uh, a positive effect on lower prices and on other things that are energy dependent. We've seen some downward movement in a, in a few places like, uh, you know, a, a dozen eggs was a little cheaper in June than May. But let's be honest, the good thing in this economy is that people are working, unemployment's low, it's a very strong labor force, but there's global inflation and, and American workers and their families are still struggling mm-hmm. with it. This is good news, but it's not good enough. One thing that the White House could do to provide some relief uh, for families suffering from this insane inflation uh, is to get rid of the Trump era China tariffs. I've seen estimates of anything from $500 to $1,000 a year saved for the average family if those were uh, if the president were to get rid of them. I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't get rid of them other than the fact that labor unions like them and Biden is tight with labor unions. Well, Jake, I don't want to get ahead of the president's uh, decision-making announcement, but what I would say is that when you're looking at something this central in our trade and economic relationships with China, you can't just be looking at any one factor. Uh, Our relationship with them, ensuring that they are trading fair, dealing fair with the United States, not uh, uh, taking advantage of uh, uh, of supply chain issues to uh, uh, exert leverage over the United States or the rest of the world. These are very big geoeconomic issues. So whatever your view is, uh, I think one, I think any uh, president right now would be wise to look at all of the factors affecting our relationship with China, with trade, with our economic relationship in making a decision like this. Let's turn to the sweeping climate change, uh, the sweeping package to combat climate change uh, that was squashed by Democratic Senator Manchin in the 11th hour last week. Here's what uh, Manchin told CNN today. Take a listen. I never strung anybody along. I was the first one to raise the alarm on inflation. I've done it well over a year ago. I saw all the signs and indications. I was told there were 17 Nobel laureates who said, oh, no, it's it's going to be transitory. I, in my mind, and what I understood, and the people that have the knowledge, I could come to the conclusion that it wasn't going to be transitory. It's damaging. And right now, inflation is the number one damaging and uh, damaging effect in our economy. It's affecting everybody. What, what's your response to Senator Manchin, who is claiming that the package to combat climate change would make inflation worse? Well, you know, first thing I'd say is that uh, there is still a lot of positive movement on, as you know, Jake, uh, doing uh, lowering something that's been a price 
problem for seniors and other Americans for decades with its prescription drug costs, which could come down very significantly with with what is still likely to be in, be in reconciliation. And 13 million Americans could be having lower uh, health care premium costs. So you still see a lot of potential legislative progress on two major things in healthcare that could lower costs on families. In terms of climate change, uh, no, we don't, you know, we disagree, but, you know, we have honorable disagreements. And, uh, uh, you know, I've always uh, worked well with Senator uh, Manchin, but, uh, uh, you know, we actually think that almost the Build Back Better uh, uh, elements uh, uh, would, act, would not be uh, inflationary. And in fact, that is, I believe is the uh, uh, view of, of a large number of economists. Uh, but we'll make progress where we can. Uh, and in areas where in other areas, we'll go back and keep fighting. As you say, president will look for other legislative opportunities. He'll look for other executive actions. Uh, as MJ Lee was saying earlier, uh, this is not an issue that this president uh, uh, is ever going to take a pass on or give up on. We're always going to be mm-hmm. fighting uh, to do the right thing on climate change. And I do believe that by moving towards a more uh, uh, climate friendly policies with more people mm-hmm. having incentives to do uh, 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 to use energy efficient products, that is also a way that we start building a very positive uh, independence. Yeah. So we are less dependent on the Russia's and the other countries in, in the world for mm-hmm. our basic supply, our basic price issues. All right, Gene Sperling, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the urgency pushed into overdrive in the post Roe v. Wade era, how one state legislature is skipping parts of the democratic process to get an abortion ban on the books as soon as possible. In our politics lead, abortion rights supporters are raising alarms about the impact of the U.S. Supreme Court decision which overturned Roe and what that decision will have, the impact it will have on low-income women now forced to carry pregnancies to term. Many of those women in states that offer very little in terms of support for those women during their pregnancy. South Carolina, which currently has a six-week abortion ban, has a poverty rate far higher than the national average and just one statewide program to help pregnant women. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich uh, traveled to the Palmetto State, which could be headed for a total ban on abortion. Hell no, we don't need Roe! Just hours after the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the half-century precedent of Roe versus Wade, dozens of states banned or rolled back abortion laws, including South Carolina, which now has a six-week abortion ban. And now the state House and Senate are tracking dual bills to stop abortions outright. Our state is free and unconstrained by the Roe versus Wade decision. Republican State Representative John McCravey chairs the ad hoc committee created to draft the legislation. Terminating the life of a person for economics should not ever be a choice. But in a state with a poverty rate that is higher than the national average, the economic consequences could be devastating for women. What kinds of economic legislation are you proposing, looking into, going to put forward to support women? We actually put in the budget this year uh, a one-time grant to a lot of our crisis pregnancy centers. They can plug them into what we call WIC benefits, Medicaid, they get them transportation. Are these funded by the state? No. They're not, no, right? No, not, not currently. 
in other states like Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, who resemble South Carolina's stance on abortion. Anti-abortion supporters often point to state-funded programs that provide health care and services to pregnant women and new moms. In South Carolina, there is only one such program, the postpartum newborn home visit. It's one visit on average. It's not enough. What would you like to see? That's a state-funded program. What would you like to see that program do? I think we need to have a task force put together to look at these things. But a special session will likely be called in weeks to vote on the abortion bill, all but guaranteeing a total ban. McCravey says the bill will exclude a ban on contraception when the woman's life is in danger and will not criminalize women who cross state lines. This is um, our primary concern and priority right now. Ann Warner has been lobbying legislators here to vote no on an abortion ban. People who are denied abortion care are more likely to live in poverty and financial insecurity. 58% of U.S. adults said before the Roe decision they'd want their state to set abortion laws that were more permissive than restrictive. South Carolina has not expanded Medicaid or increased their minimum wage from $7.25 an hour in decades. Both could lift hundreds of thousands out of poverty. When black women, Latina women, Native women are unable to plan for their families, then the entire economy suffers for it. And that's something, sadly, that South Carolina has fallen short on again and again. But for now, the priority here is for a total ban on abortion. Is there one single additional economic priority that would benefit women and children? There's probably not one particular, any one thing you could fund that would really make the difference across the board, other than maybe adoption. Now, today, the ad hoc committee in the state made their recommendation for a total ban on abortion. And, Jake, this has some pro-abortion activists obviously upset, but upset also because they had just one public hearing. It lasted seven hours. There are lines out the door. Many pro-abortion activists said they didn't get in to make their comment. They feel like these state legislators had made up their mind already. This is also a state that had a $1 billion surplus last year. I asked the chairman Uh, Representative McCravey, whether or not he would use any of that money to fund economic programs for women and children. He said that they would look into it, but probably not till next year. So clearly the economic policies and these abortion bans are not tracking at the same time. The priority for them is the ban and then following potentially the economic policies might be too late for some women, though, Jake. All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks so much. Let's talk about this with CNN political commentators Errol Lewis and Essie Cup. And Essie, let's just start with the obvious if you made a list of the states that have the, the, the least generous benefits mm-hmm. for pregnant women and, and poor women and poor children, and then also made a list of the states with the most restrictive abortion mm-hmm. laws, it's basically the same the list. Track. It's right. basically the same list. Right. And because of that reason, you would have hoped, uh, I guess, that the Republican Party, who's been you know, uh, going after this um, prize for decades— would be prepared, would have set in place some safety nets. And it wasn't that long ago, Jake, you remember this, when Republicans like Paul Ryan talked a lot about safety nets and opportunity zones. And this wasn't out of place inside the Republican Party. But now you have a Republican Party for whom safety net is akin to socialism. Compassion 
is akin to wokeism. You can't effort anything like that without being almost ostracized from the party. That's the unfortunate part of all of this. I mean, it is a cliche, Errol, but there are Democrats and and, uh, pro-abortion rights supporters who say that, uh, and I think George Carlin said something along the lines of Republicans care about life up to the moment of birth, uh, and then after that, you're on your own. Yeah, the gap between the rhetoric and the reality is yawning, and we just saw a perfect example of it. A billion-dollar surplus, and they said, well, maybe next year we might provide some of it to these women who we are going to put task, in a terribly... task force. Yeah, task yeah force. the task force. <laughs> that we're going to put into a terribly difficult, uh, life, literally life-threatening, uh, life-altering uh, situation due to this 40-year campaign that we've been on to take away their choices. Uh, there are those who think that... The harm and the control was always the point, and that there was some window dressing around, oh, we're, we're into life and we're into making sure babies grow up and so forth. But the reality r- really sort of counters that. And so I think we'll, we're going to see that play out in the midterms this year. So I, I just want to, I'm not sure if we have the images of it, but the Capitol Police say they arrested 17 Democratic lawmakers in front of the U.S. Supreme Court today. They were protesting in, in support of abortion rights, having marched there from the Capitol wearing bandanas saying, won't back down. Um, legislation supporting abortion rights is not likely to ever get through the U.S. Senate where it needs 60 votes. Um, is there anything Democrats can do uh, beyond these largely symbolic measures on the federal level? I think what a lot of people are lamenting is that the time for that has come and gone. Democrats could have done some things, and I don't think they're in a position to do it now. And I don't think these symbolic protests are really the kind of governing that Democratic voters, even folks in the middle, moderates, are, you know, are expecting of, of their leaders. And that's why I think you see so many disaffected voters. And, and uh, we should note also, Errol, journalists um, have reported on stories of dangerously delayed care for pregnant women uh, in, the, in the wake of what is described as a very confusing uh, legal landscape in many states after the Roe decision, with doctors saying uh, miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies are under, under increasing scrutiny uh, even in cases where the only treatment mm-hmm. to save the mother's life That's is right. abortion. There are states where the uh, lawmakers are saying that there shouldn't even be an exception for the life of the mother. And, and there's, all, there's always that, uh, that horrific case of the 10-year-old yep. a victim of rape. Um, this is just three weeks in, Jake, and we're going to hear more horror stories. There will be more horror stories. Every three-week period will yield the same number of stories, if not more. It will all be reported, and I think you'll see more lawmakers in the streets. In fact, they're going back to movement politics. Mm. It, was a, it was a movement that brought about the repeal of Roe. It will take another movement, uh, people in the streets, including lawmakers, who recognize that they're, they're legal, uh, there are legal limitations they cannot get past. They're going to have to change minds, put bodies in the streets, mm. um, maybe cost some people their jobs at the polls. And it may take a long time, but that's what it's going to take to sort of set things right and deal with some of these horror stories. I personally am skeptical that uh, anything other than inflation in the economy will preside over what's important, most important for voters in November. Uh, but there, there are people, Democrats, uh, abortion rights supporters, who hope that this issue will galvanize Democratic voters and even pro-choice Republican voters. A majority of Americans, 55 percent, say Republicans are too extreme on this issue. 58 percent say Democrats are in the mainstream on this issue. And in the generic battle, I'm sorry, the generic ballot for Americans' choice for Congress, Democrats have now pulled even with Republicans. A significant change from May when the Republicans had a seven-point advantage. I have no idea what's going to happen in November. Let me just underline that. But do you think that the the overturning row might actually help Democrats in November? Well, in a couple of ways, I can't think of a more galvanizing issue to turn people out to the polls. 
But at the same time, it also took this issue away from Republicans, right? When the threat was hanging large, Republicans could really run on this. Now the Supreme Court kind of took care of that for them and took, I think, a lot of the wind out of the sails. We'll see how it plays out. I'm, like you, not that convinced that abortion is going to be the driving factor of these elections. But I think in midterms, which usually don't drive out anyone but the sort of motivated extremes, you could see a a larger turnout because of this issue. I'm sure Republicans generally would rather run on inflation than having to uh, talk about Donald Trump and 10-year-old pregnant victims of of rape, which is... And a ban that's very unpopular. Very unpopular and against what the majority of the public wants. Right. S.E. Cup and Earl Lewis, thanks. President Biden today signed an executive order trying to get ahead of another country ever taking another American hostage. Stay with us. President Biden signed an executive order today focused on freeing American detainees and hostages in other countries. But some families of detainees and hostages say President Biden is just trying to distract from other news. Let's bring in CNN's Kylie Atwood. Kylie, what does this new executive order do? Well, Jake, there's two main aspects of it. The first of which is calling on Biden administration officials to identify and recommend options and strategies to bring these Americans who are hostages and wrongfully detained abroad home back to the United States. So essentially doubling down on the work that already is underway. And then the other aspect of it is that this will now allow for sanctions, financial sanctions and travel bans, visa sanctions, visa bans on those who are responsible for holding these Americans, whether they are state actors or they are terrorist groups. And Kylie, tell us more about what same families of detainees and hostages are are saying about this executive order. Well, we're getting some mixed responses. Some family members are saying this is incredibly welcome, but then others who were on a phone call as the administration described what they were going to do yesterday said that they felt extremely isolated because they weren't able to ask any questions about these new efforts that were being rolled out. They felt it wasn't great delivery, and they also felt that what they're rolling out here isn't what they have been asking for, which is more engagement with the administration on this and specifically, of course, meeting with President Biden. Jake. All right, Kylie, I went at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a mother's response to a theme park apology and the costumed character who appeared to snub two little black girls. Oh, no, Rosita, say it ain't so. In the National League, Sesame Place, an amusement park right outside the great city of Philadelphia, is apologizing after a video appears to show one of its costumed characters, one of its Muppets, ignoring two young black girls during a parade on Saturday. The video taken by one girl's mother shows the character known as Rosita high-fiving a young child and an adult who appear to be white and then waving off, snubbing the two black girls who had their arms stretched out. The video does show the character also wagging her finger at someone else before the girls. Let's bring in CNN's Bryn Gingras. The, the mom who took this video is now responding to Sesame Place's apology. What does she have to say? Yeah, so it's the nine-second video you're seeing there. That's all that's been recorded. She says what happened after that is when she took a minute and was like, whoa, 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 that's not okay. Essentially, she said after she stopped recording, she saw Rosita then turn to a child that was white next to those two little black girls and embraced them in a hug. And that's, again, when she was like, something was not right, and she made complaints about it. I want you to hear from her as she spoke to CNN shortly uh, a short time ago. Now that I spoke up and released my video, now there's multiple parents who have similar videos 
with that character doing the same thing to the same race of children. Um, so for me, that's not a coincidence at all. Um, it's absolutely disgusting. And I do feel like the organization honestly really and truly needs to accept accountability. And we actually reached out to Sesame Place in regards to those allegations about other videos of possible racism. They referred to some statements that they've already released, uh, and we're also working to verify those other videos at the moment. But I do want to get to those statements. The first one was released the day after this incident happened, and Sesame Place said this, Our brand, our park, and our employees stand for inclusivity and equality in all forms. That is what Sesame Place is about. And we do not tolerate any behaviors in our parks that are contrary uh, to that commitment. So they also went on to say, Jake, in this, that this was all a misunderstanding. This is in the first statement that they released, saying, you know, it's possible that this character was actually telling one of the parade goers that, no, I can't hold your child because that's not allowed to have photo ops by actually holding children. Or it's possible that uh, the costume was too big and they didn't see the two little girls that are at a lower level. Um, the mother, I talked to her, she said, that, you know, these are differing sort of opinions. Like, really, it, this it sounds like a denial to her is what she essentially said. And, and explain the backlash the park has received since this video went viral. Yeah, so the mom says she actually tried to talk to a superintendent, or supervisor rather, that day and got no response. So she put it online and it's gone viral and that's why we're all talking about it. And they then were sort of forced to send out a second statement. I want to read that to you. That was released on Monday night. It said, we sincerely apologize to the family for their experience in our park on Saturday. We know that is not okay. We are taking actions to do better. We are committed to making this right. We will conduct training for our employees so they better understand, recognize, and deliver an inclusive, equitable, and entertaining experience to our guests. Again, this mother, her attorney, say it's not enough. More needs to be done. They're in conversations with the park. Uh, but they also say, listen, this, we deserve more of an apology. We deserve more than just a refund. Uh, they want this to be taken care of in more ways than one. You know, I learned to read by watching Sesame Street as a kid. Uh, the show was launched the same year I was born, and it is about inclusivity. Right. Right? And that's where Rosita. Maria, Gordon, First Luis. character to be bilingual. Yeah. I mean, it's just... So it's... It's sad. Inappropriate. Thank you so much, Brenton right. Gross. Appreciate it. Coming up, a man arrested, accused of stalking a congresswoman and her family. I'm going to talk with that member of Congress about the ordeal her family her family's going through in the wake of this incident. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a temporary win for Twitter as the social media company takes on the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, who tried to back out of a $44 billion deal. Plus, a nationwide staffing shortage putting your safety at risk. Police departments now begging for recruits to join their ranks. And leading this hour, explain yourself. The National Archives demanding answers about a batch of missing text messages from the U.S. Secret Service sent before and during the January 6th Capitol riot, this as the committee investigating last year's deadly attack sets the witness lineup for Thursday's primetime hearing. Let's bring in CNN Justice correspondent Evan Perez. Evan, what exactly did the committee receive and not receive from the Secret Service today? And why is the National Archives getting involved? Well, the archives is, is getting involved, Jake, because, uh, you know, there are federal laws that govern uh, government records under the President, Presidential Records Act. And one of the things they're asking the Homeland Security Department is to report back within 30 days exactly what the circumstances were for deleting all of these uh, these text messages that the Secret Service now says are not recoverable. They turned over hundreds of thousands of, uh, of pages of documents emails uh, and other things they say that um, the committee wanted as part of its subpoena, 
But they now say that they cannot recover these deleted messages that they say occurred simply because they were changing over devices, uh, something that they say was pre-planned and, of course, has raised a lot of questions as to why specifically uh, these text messages from the day before and the day the date of uh, the January 6th attack on the Capitol, why those are missing. The the uh, Secret Service put out a pretty defiant statement when the inspector general right. first made this claim. So that was just nonsense? That was just crap? Well, I mean, it was one of those things where we, we one of the things we said at the time was that they were talking past each other. It seemed yeah. there seemed very lawyerly uh, letters that were seeming seeming to be talking past each other. And so now we know the definitive thing that they're telling the committee is we don't have. So the inspector general was right in the Secret Service statement was misleading. So anyway, the committee met today with former Trump White House aide Garrett Ziegler. He worked for Peter Navarro, then a White House economic advisor. Why is Ziegler's perspective, why is his story important to the committee? Well, he was key. uh, He was a key member of, of the group that was trying to push the former president to hear out this idea to appoint Sidney Powell as a special counsel to investigate uh, vote fraud, essentially. And so he was one of the persons who was at that, what people call an unhinged meeting in December uh, of 2020. And he is obviously somebody who was sympathetic to this idea that uh, the former president was not being served by his lawyers, by people inside the White House who were telling him, this is not legal, this is not how you do things. And finally, just breaking a few minutes ago, Business, I, Business Insider for, uh, issued a Freedom of Information Act request to the Pentagon, and they found out that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was finding out about the attack on the Capitol from tweets being sent by me and Phil Mattingly <laughs> and Manu Raju. That, that was how the chairman of the Joint Chiefs was finding out about the attack on the Capitol, from, extra- from my tweets. Uh, a, I mean, look, you tweet well, right? So that's good. Um, but this is not how the Joint Chiefs of Staff should be getting information. And it's clear from uh, these records that were released to business insiders that, you know, there's a lot of emails uh, and, and, and messages that they're exchanging as things are going on. And a lot of it is coming from public reporting, which, you know, is sort of give you a sense of, you know this, this is how the Trump uh, administration was working, especially in those waning days. Uh, we learn also, you know, there, there are some redacted messages that, you know, they're talking about fencing. We don't know exactly what exactly Cash Patel, who had been installed at the Prince Department, uh, was, was interested in there. But I, again, there's a lot of what it, what it draws a picture of, Jake, is, and what the committee, I think, you're going to hear from tomorrow is how just nutty things were in those waning days of the Trump administration as people were trying to essentially say to the president, time for you to go. Well, I mean, I'm glad the Pentagon was reading our tweets, I guess. Although, yes, you'd think they would have better sources of information. Uh, also in our politics, a jury has now been sworn in in the contempt of Congress trial against former Trump aide Steve Bannon. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us live now from outside the federal courthouse in Washington. Sarah, what do we know about this jury and what's next? Well, things finally got underway with sort of a rocky start this morning, but they did finally seat a jury of 14. That includes two alternates. It's a mostly white jury. It's nine men. It's five women. And then pretty quickly after that, both sides moved into their opening statements uh, with the government arguing, you know, what we've heard them argue over and over again in court, that Steve Bannon got this subpoena, that he was required by Congress to respond to it, that he was required by Congress to comply. And they said, you know, this is not a situation of someone getting caught on a metro. This is someone who refused to comply with the subpoena, Jake. 
And, and Sarah, we were hoping to get a, a glimpse at Bannon's defense tactics today. Uh, tell us about that. We did. We got a glance. You know, part of that is because the judge has excluded a lot of these potential defenses that Steve Bannon could make. But the, the clear argument his attorneys were making in their opening statements was that there was no real hard and firm date related to these subpoenas. They're saying that Steve Bannon's attorney was still talking to, you know, lawyers for the House committee, that the, they were in negotiations. And so, you know, Steve Bannon could walk away from that, believing that the date of this was in flux. Bannon's attorney said there was no ignoring the subpoena. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. She's also the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. We have a lot to to cover here, Congresswoman. But first, I want to ask you about this horrible incident you and your family went through uh, that's been reported. Uh, An armed man was arrested near your house in Seattle. Allegedly, he was threatening you and your family. Uh, You told a different network that he's been stalking you for months. First, how are you and your family doing? And second, how, how did we get to this point where where political violence uh, is so commonplace. Well, Jake, it's been a rough couple of weeks, I'm not going to lie, and I feel like I'm spending an enormous amount of my time just trying to assure my personal safety, even as I try to do the work of Congress here, and I am doing the work of Congress. But this larger point that you're making is so critical. This This is not about a single vote I took. This was a racist, sexist, violent, extremist attack outside my house, and it could happen to anybody. And in fact, we've seen the number of violent extremist attacks uh, against elected officials going up higher and higher. And I think we just have to be clear that, um, you know, this kind of violence, I believe, has been unleashed over the last six years because it was always there that there was racism, white supremacy, all of these things. But when you have the person in the highest office of the land also working with white supremacist groups, encouraging violence at rallies, using legislative tools like bans to, you know, push out people and make them otherwise, it is a huge problem. And it is very difficult to roll back some of this. So this is a national problem, and it's not unrelated at all to January 6th, where you know I was trapped in the gallery. This is all part of the same extremism that is facing our country today and makes it difficult for us as elected officials not to have people protesting us or disagreeing. I've had a lot of that, Jake. This was entirely different. Vitriolic hatred that was coupled with um, a person with a gun right at my door. Um, Let's talk about January 6th and the investigation because that House committee is still digging and finding new evidence even as they prepare a report on their findings. Uh, Do you feel like they will be rushing to publish a a report that will ultimately be incomplete just because they want to finish it um, before Republicans, you know, possibly take over Congress and kill the committee. Well, I think it's important that they get out as much as they can, but also important that we understand that with every hearing, we are finding a new jigsaw puzzle piece that is putting together the whole, and there's more and more people coming out of the woodwork, which, thank goodness, for you know some brave people like Cassidy Hutchinson and others who have shown the model of what it looks like to stand up for country over party. So I, I am hopeful that even tomorrow, which is going to be a, a difficult hearing, um, but a very important one for many of us, that when we see the report, it's not going to be the final word, because if more information comes in, they will continue to do that work. And I think it's important that the DOJ quickly step in and actually bring accountability around Donald Trump and his attempted coup. What do you make of the U.S. Secret Service 
um, not able to find those deleted text messages from January 5th and January 6th. They, they gave thousands of documents to the committee today, but not those ones from their agents. They say they haven't been able to recover them. Um, do, you, do you buy it that it, this was just about a transfer of new, I guess it was in new uh, phones or whatever? I, I, I don't want, I, look, I want to believe them, but I also think the problem now is that the institutions have been corrupted, that we have people within these institutions who were part and parcel of all of these attempts, many of whom have been courageous and stepped forward and said, you know what, I got pulled into this, I don't want to be a part of it, but there are still a lot of people out there who um, are still sort of parts of this. So I hope that it's just a mistake, but it's a difficult one, Jake, to imagine is just a mistake or an oversight that happens to focus on this very important set of text messages. And that is a big problem within the Secret Service institution. Let's turn to a major vote today that could codify um, the the legal right to a same-sex marriage. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz is out there saying that he thinks that should be overturned by the Supreme Court next, that ruling. Senate Minority Whip John Thune says there could possibly be 60 votes in the Senate to codify Obergefell. Um, Are you surprised? Well, let's see if it happens. If it does, fantastic. This is a right that needs to be codified. Uh, You know I'm the mom of a trans kid. You know I'm uh, big on these issues of people being able to love who they want to love and marry who they want to marry. And so if there are 10 Republicans in the Senate who are willing to do this, I don't know why they haven't stepped forward before, um, but great if that's what's going to happen. I just would want to see that because I think the Republican Party has laid out a very clear agenda that was outlined by Clarence Thomas, now by Ted Cruz, by others, uh, by the governor of the state of Texas, that they want to strip away all these rights that have been codified. And so if we can pass it in the Senate, fabulous. But let's put some accountability there to the Republicans and see if we can. You and the Progressive Caucus got a lot of heat. Uh, during the period of time when you said you didn't want to de-link the infrastructure bill from Build Back Better because you thought you were skeptical that Joe Manchin and and maybe some others in the Senate were going to go along with Build Back Better. Ultimately, I I assume you feel uh, that you have been proven correct. Is there any chance that something still could get through, even in terms of just Uh, lowering prescription drug prices by allowing uh, Medicare to negotiate? Well, you know, unfortunately, even that provision, as it's written, is far less than allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. It's not what we put into the House bill. But I will just say this, Jake. I worked in really good faith, and despite the Senate and every Democrat in the Senate, plus Republicans, sending us the infrastructure bill all the pressure that we were under. The Progressive Caucus held the line multiple times until we did pass both bills. We passed both the Build Back Better and infrastructure. But I realized when one senator from West Virginia went on Fox News and and pulled the plug um, after he had given a commitment to his own president of his own party, that that is somebody that unfortunately does not want to or cannot close a deal. And that's, I think, what we've seen all these months later. So I'm not holding my breath. Of course, I would love to see something significant come over. Um, it should include the health care subsidies, real prescription drug pricing uh, negotiation, and 
covering people in states that didn't expand Medicaid. It should include insulin. These were all things that were taken out. So let's see where we get to. Let's see if there's actually something that comes over and whether it's worthwhile and will actually reduce costs for the American people. Democratic Congresswoman from Washington, Pramila Jayapal, thank you. And, and let me just say on behalf of my staff, uh, all of us here at CNN and, and all of our viewers, I'm sure, we're so sorry that that happened to you and your family, but we're so happy that you're okay. I really appreciate Jake very, very much. Thank you. We're with you. We're with you. Thank you. Coming up, what we're likely to hear from the Trump White House insiders slated to testify Thursday. Two people who know the witnesses' names very well will join me next. Plus, 112 days until November's midterm election, but who's counting? What Democrats are getting wrong that may put their House and Senate majorities in jeopardy? I'll speak with a woman whose resume includes 20 campaigns. Oh, my God. Who's that? And we're back with our politics lead in the intense focus on three hours and seven minutes of American history. Thursday's likely grand finale hearing for the January 6th Select Committee will spotlight those moments featuring live testimony from two Trump White House officials, former Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews and Matthew Pottinger, who served on the National Security Council. Let's bring in Maggie Haberman of The New York Times and CNN's uh, Caitlin Collins, the chief. Well, I was trying to think of your title. It's, no, it's chief. It's chief White House correspondent. But I was going to call you senior. And then I, I was you were going to remind me that you were chief. So that's why I was thinking, what's the title? What's the title? Anyway, Maggie, you have a piece out today about these witnesses. Why are they the best people to make the case for this critical primetime meeting uh, about what Trump was doing or rather not doing? while the Capitol was under siege. So, Jake, both of uh, these witnesses, Sarah Matthews and Matt Pottinger, resigned on January 6th. So that's a big reason that the committee is interested in them, because they are going to speak to how they reacted to what was taking place. And what they were reacting to in both cases is said to be inaction that they are going to describe. In Sarah Matthews' case, it's going to be inaction on the part of Trump issuing a statement and saying anything to try to get the, the supporters of his who had swarmed the Capitol and were rioting and threatening the vice president to go home. And in the case of Matt Pottinger, it is is going to be, uh, you know, that he alerted uh, Mark Meadows, as we understand that he has told the committee that he alerted Mark Meadows that in the three o'clock hour that the National Guard was not yet there, not yet at the Capitol or on the scene. And Mark Meadows relayed that he had contacted multiple times a Defense Department official trying to make that happen, and it still hadn't happened. And so I think all of that is going to be key to filling in this timeline that has been, Jake, something of a black hole. Yeah. Matt Pottinger, a fairly respected national oh, security yeah. official, used to be a Wall Street Journal reporter, he I believe. He used to be a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter, had a focus on Asia. He was around this White House constantly. He is going to be hard for Trump to dismiss as, you know, a coffee boy or someone he barely well, knew. As he'll try anyway, I'm, yeah, sure. I'm sure. he will attempt to, but it will, <laughs> and, it will be hard to believe. And, and Caitlin, um, you reported on Pottinger's resignation in real time on January 6th. What are you going to be listening for? I think two things will be interesting. One is that they both had proximity in the West Wing on that day, which is obviously the key that the committee is going after. So then people can't try to discredit them and say, you're just going off secondhand information or you heard what your boss, who's a lawmaker, said. Matt Pottinger was in the West Wing that day. He went to the Oval Office to speak to try to speak to Trump, ended up speaking to Mark Meadows. Sarah Matthews, she's not a household name, but she was a deputy to Kaylee McEnany, and she sat right outside of her office. And, of course, Kaylee was one of the names that day that was going in and out of the Oval Office, trying to speak with Trump, trying to get him to put a video out. And so I think in that way, they could potentially be useful. I also just think with Pottinger, you know, he was one of the few who resigned that day, but it was a conversation that was happening among a lot of people about resigning, high-ranking people who did not actually follow through with their resignations. I think it will be interesting if he sheds light on that. 
and also conversations of the 25th Amendment, because mm-hmm. that is something we are told that he was involved in. It's not clear fully what his role was in that, but it was something that was up for discussion. And so that's another aspect that I think the committee will be asking about. Yeah, we, we heard from, the, we learned from the committee that the Education Secretary, Betsy DeMoss, was talking about the 25th Amendment, although Vi- Vice President Pence said he wasn't interested. Mm-hmm. Speaking of January 6th and events of that day, these text messages from Secret Service agents that day and the day before, it turns out that the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security was right, and the Secret Service, de- despite defiant denials on Twitter, was wrong. Uh, they're not there. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, well, it's going to raise a lot of questions, and we know that the service has told the committee uh, that you know they are continuing to search for these texts, that this took place during a migration uh, of, of services that they were using. We have information that two days before that migration took place in January of 2021, uh, agents were told and staff was told that at the service, you know, you do your own records retention if need be. If there's something you need to keep, keep it. Uh, that raises additional questions. And I don't know that we're going to get the answers, Jake, but I can understand why the committee is skeptical of what they're hearing. I also think following the whole Cassidy Hutchinson testimony about Tony mm-hmm. Arnato and what happened with Trump and the Secret Service, it's raised so many doubts about the Secret Service and whether or not, not them collectively, but individually, how truthful they're being. And so I think that's another aspect. Maybe it was all above board, but I think people are very skeptical right. of the company lines that they're hearing because of what people are learning from the January 6th committee and what people are saying behind closed doors that they were denying fervently to us at the time when we were reporting. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because I know not only Democrats, but Republicans who are convinced. And again, obviously, we're not talking about all of the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not even talking about most of the Secret Service. But it does seem like there is an element of the Secret Service that was more loyal to Trump than it was to the Constitution. I mean, it does seem, sound, it sounds like there was a radicalized element of the Secret Service. That is something that the, that the committee is investigating, is whether that's the case. Uh, Jake, I don't know that that is the case. I certainly do know that all of these agents end up getting pretty close to the, to the protectees, to the family, to the, to the president uh, himself or herself, um, whoever they are protecting, because they have to see that person as a human in order to be able to you know, risk their lives potentially for that person. Um, but what the committee is looking at is whether what you just said became the case? Were people more concerned about Trump? Or was there just such a fog of war that day um, to give benefit of the doubt? We don't know. But the, the Secret Service in its own answers, um, they have not always been forthcoming. And they're not an agency that is used to having to be forthcoming. So yeah. that's the other piece. And, and Kate, we should just point out how unusual it is for a Secret Service agent to be asked to join the political staff of a White House, which is what happened with Tony Ornato, who became, he went from head of the president's detail to deputy White House chief of staff, which is a political job. Yeah, and if you speak to people who worked in the West Wing at that time, Tony Ornato was very central to all of this in a way that you have not seen people in that position before be. Central in the way that I mean of West Wing planning, and mm-hmm. he was someone that Trump often said, get Tony for me, things like of that nature. That was the kind of nature of their relationship, and I think that's why it's put so much focus on it and so much scrutiny based on what he has said, what Cassidy Hutchinson testified he told her the denials that have come as a result of that. And it's just raised more questions, I think, than it's answered. I think that's true. But I do want to say, Jake, it, to be to be fair, I think there has been this, this question about yes-men, quote-unquote, and whether some of these agents became that. What we know of what those agents did on January 6th, anyway, was tell Trump, we're not taking you to the Capitol. Right. That is not a yes-man. That is somebody saying no to something that we know that Trump raised, not just that day, but several days before that. And so I just think that that's, for the Absolutely. totality of the picture, is worth bearing in mind. Although also worth pointing out, the Vice President Pence was reluctant to get into uh, the car with the Secret Service because he was worried they were going to take him away so he couldn't fulfill 
his, his constitutional duty, that's something else. And not that they were going to hurt him, but they were going to keep him from doing what he needed to do to certify the election. Because their priority is protecting him. Right. And obviously being in a situation where there are rioters descending on the Capitol, the Secret Service's first job is to get you out of that, okay. take you away from it. It's been a fight with presidents before in situations, natural disasters, where presidents want to go, Secret Service agents say it's not safe. This is a situation where Pence's staff said it's not because they had concerns about the service. Right. They right. did not want to do what their recommendation They was. should all come forward and testify publicly under oath like Cassidy Hutchinson did instead of just whispering to things, to, to reporters. Anyway, Maggie and Caitlin, thanks so much. We like the whispers. You like the whispers? <laughs> I like the public testimony, too. I like come, both. How about that? How about both? Okay, we agree. Coming up next, see what it takes these days to escape occupied parts of Ukraine almost five months now into Russia's invasion. Stay with us. The world lead, Ukraine's first lady, greeted by President Biden outside the White House today, meeting also with First Lady Jill Biden as she looks to highlight the human cost of Putin's brutal war against her country, where Ukraine's military says Russia is ramping up airstrikes in southern Ukraine. Cruise missiles targeting a village in the Odessa region, striking near a school and residential buildings, injuring at least six people, including a child, an attack which Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says confirms Russia is a terrorist state. CNN's Ivan Watson reports now on the struggle for Ukrainian civilians desperately trying to escape this war. Trudging down dirt roads, Ukrainians escaping zones of Russian occupation. The invading Russian army closed many routes to Ukrainian-controlled territory, forcing people to improvise. Hundreds of discarded bicycles left behind by displaced people who used them to reach the village of Zelenodolsk. Andrei Heliluk fled 10 days ago, walking down paths past unexploded landmines. He traveled on foot and then on a rubber dinghy across a river and then on foot again and then in a car and then in a bus to try to get here. Heliluk says he lived for more than four months in his village under Russian military occupation. Andrei says that Pro-Russian militia from Donetsk broke into empty apartments and were living in there, broke into businesses as well. He calls them barbarians. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, more than 61,000 people fled to the city of Kriviroh, where they were all initially welcomed at this reception center. At the center, I meet Maxim Ovchar. They detained you? Yeah, yeah, twice. Ovchar is a medical doctor who lived and worked in the southern city of Kherson, which was invaded and occupied by Russian forces in early March. He says he fled with his grandmother on July 7th after armed Russian officials tried to convince him and other Ukrainian doctors to work for them. When you and the other doctors said no to working with the occupation, how did the Russians react? Uh, they react uh, very hateful for us. In the first weeks of the occupation, some Ukrainians in Kherson protested <laughs> until Russians opened fire. The occupation has since cut off Kherson's communications with the outside world. But the Ukrainian government claims there is local resistance. 90% of uh, people of Kherson, 90% of people in Kherson hate the Russians, Dr. Ovchar says. He says he saw Russian troops wounded by a local resistance attack, 
then brought for treatment at a Kherson hospital. At the Welcome Center, volunteers organized temporary shelter for displaced Ukrainians. I am lost my job. I am Your lost house? my house. You have a car? Some of my friends, I lost as a murdered by the Russians. The charity provides free food, medicine, clothing, and counseling for traumatized adults and children. We lived well before the war, Dr. Ovchar says, and now I'm ashamed to ask for help. Russia's invasion has forced millions of Ukrainians now to rely on the kindness of strangers. A growing number of Ukrainians that I've spoken to who've escaped occupation have described a pattern of harassment, abuse, public drunkenness by Russian soldiers, and efforts to erase Ukrainian identity, forcing Ukrainian speakers to speak Russian. For example, the charity that greets displaced persons here in this city, they say they nearly five months into the war, are receiving up to 400 new people fleeing Russian occupation in the conflict zone every day. Jake? Ivan Watson in Ukraine, thank you so much for that report. A new CNN poll today shows voters and lawmakers are nowhere near aligned on priorities for America. Coming up next, a political insider with her take on how those differing opinions may play out in the midterm election. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. Brand new CNN polling focused on the midterm elections. Two-thirds of registered voters say the Democratic candidates for Congress where they live are not paying enough attention to the country's most important problems. Only 31% of voters say these Democratic candidates have the right priorities. The numbers are similar when you ask about Republican candidates. Only 33% of voters believe they are focused on the right issues. These results should sound alarm bells for both parties, especially among Democrats who were already facing an uphill battle to maintain control of Congress in November. Let's bring in Liz Smith now. She's a veteran of 20 different Democratic campaigns, probably best known for serving as a senior advisor to Pete Buttigieg's 2020 presidential run. And Liz is also the author of a brand new book called Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story, which is out now. And first of all, one of the best titles of any political memoir ever, Any Given Tuesday. Explain it for our audience who might not get it. Um, well, I'm a big football fan, and uh, there's a saying in, that uh, in football, any given Tuesday, that any given Sunday, any given Sunday, right? right. Any given Sunday, the worst team uh, can walk out on the field and beat the best team. Best team can walk out on the field and lose to the worst team. And it's not your losses that define you or your wins that define you. And you've got to pick yourself up and have an element of belief and carry yourself on through Sunday after Sunday. And that's how I feel about politics, and that's why I called it Any Given Tuesday. So let me ask you, just before we get into your book, because you are a political expert, you've seen these polls. How worried do you think Democrats should be? Uh, two-thirds of Democratic vote, I'm sorry, two-thirds of American voters think they're out of touch on the issues. S- similar numbers for Republicans, but Democrats can currently, con- currently control the House and Senate. Uh, well, they should make Democrats concerned. But um, right now, the problem is that Democrats are facing a situation where it's a referendum against Democrats. We need to change this into a choice election. I write about this in my book, um, how in 2012, you know, Barack Obama was written for dead. You covered that race, I remember. You and I were in contact then. And what he did was um, take it from a referendum on his record and use the election to define Mitt Romney and use the most extreme elements of the Republican Party. It was then um, Richard Murdoch, Todd Akin, 
to uh, hang around the necks of all the other Republicans because of their extreme views on abortion and things like that. Ten years later, those guys are are squarely in the mainstream of the Republican Party. Sure. And so Democrats need to go on the offensive. But are they? No, we have not yet been. Um, I do think that the way that primaries are sort of uh, working themselves out, uh, Republicans in race after race are nominating the most extreme candidates. We're seeing that in both gubernatorial and Senate can- Senate campaigns. And that is um, a source of hope for Democrats heading into November. But there could also backfire, right? I mean, I- I've seen Democrats and Democratic Party uh, PACs and the like finding the most extreme Republicans in different races and actually supporting them financially, sending them money in the hopes that that will be an easier candidate for the Democrat to defeat. But like you look at Pennsylvania right now, Josh Shapiro, the attorney general, he's, he's the gubernatorial nominee. He's facing this guy, Doug Mastriano, that is that is far out there on a lot of these issues. Right. But it's going to be a competitive race. He's, yeah, as far out there as they get. And, and you know, the, the Republican Governors Association has... Um, equivocated on whether they'll even support him. But where I disagree with you is that I think that Mastriano would have won the primary regardless of Oh, he, he yes. think that's likely true, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and to be clear, Mastriano is someone who um, stormed the Capitol on January 6th, uh, bust people to the Capitol on January 6th, opposes abortion in all cases, and he's emblematic of the extremism we're seeing in the GOP gubernatorial nominees they deny the 2020 elections. And we know that if a Democrat is elected in their states in 2024 and their governors, that we will not have free and fair elections. So let's move on to your book. Um, I, I, I think Mastriano was present at January 6th. I don't think we know if he went into the Capitol or okay, not. Okay, okay, Just to be precise. Right, anyway, right. okay. uh, you told Politico while promoting this book, Democrats left a bitch that we don't have a bench. And you know what their problem is? They're just not looking in the right places. Uh, and I know that you, like, for instance, you think Mayor Pete, who's now Secretary Pete, uh, is an example and, and others. Why aren't Democrats looking in the right places? Um, well, I think in both parties, there's a tendency to think that everything revolves around Washington, um, that everything revolves around what is on cable news, what is on CNN. And it's not. Well, that part's right. <laughs> um, we need to look outside of Washington because if you look at that poll, you know, a lot of that is informed because people feel like Washington is out of touch with them. And mayors, governors are much closer to where people are. And there is a new generation of leaders across this country, people like Aftab Pirival in Cincinnati, the new mayor, people like Mallory McMorrow in Michigan, um, people who are becoming new stars that I think um, speak to the next generation and aren't tied down in these stupid partisan battles that everyone else in Washington is. Your book is pretty brutal uh, on former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, mm-hmm. who you advised. And I, one of the things that I wondered was um, you were a strong woman advising a governor during a time when he was being accused of heinous behavior by underlings. And I'm wondering if you could tell our viewers about any ambivalence that that created. Obviously, you you have your issues with him and you make them very clear in the book. But like, did you was there ever a moment when you felt like I'm betraying my sex here, my my gender? Yeah. And and it's something I talk about in the book. Um, So he was someone that I loved. I trusted I viewed as a mentor, I viewed as a father figure, you know, especially, you know, when my father was going through, um, you know, horrible health problems that led to his death. 
Um, and so when he came to me, asked for my advice, and vehemently denied these charges, I believed him. Yeah. Um, and I think I also wanted to believe him. But I've talked with other women who advised him since, and there was a feeling that, you know, we were being sort of used and weaponized because of our gender. Um, and there's a fog of war that comes when, when you're in the middle of a crisis, right? You don't really have the time to sit back and think and listen to all the alarm bells that are in your head. Um, and that's part of the reason why I wrote this book, right? Yeah. Because I want people to learn from my successes, right? I've been able to achieve great things with people like Mayor Pete, but... Um, Secretary Pete. Well, I still call him Mayor Pete. He's Mayor Pete to me. <laughs> but he's the secretary now. Right. Um, uh, but to learn, you know, when you start to see these red flags, hear these alarm bells, all of that. So it was disappointing to me, but you know me, Jake. You know my history. I'm not a kind of soulless cut and run artist like a lot of people in politics. No. I've been through crisis myself and and I'm I'm someone who runs toward danger rather than running away from it. I'm loyal, but what the Cuomo situation taught me was the difference between earned loyalty and blind loyalty. The book is great and there's a lot of very emotional stuff about your father and I know he would be so proud of you and so proud of this book. Um, I just want to uh, leave people with this one thing that you write about um, how you convinced John Edwards uh, um, when, you were, when you were leading a, a, a student group at Dartmouth College, where we both went, yes. although I went there 50 years before you did. And you con- you've convinced Edward Wait, Staff. only 50 years? <laughs> 100, 100 years. You convinced uh, Edward Staff to have him visit campus, and you write this. Here's the thing about being annoying and persistent. Sometimes it pays off. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Yeah. That is true advice. And uh, you and I both I was about to say, you I, think, I, I think you would. You, you know and I both, both yeah. have proven that. The book is fantastic. It's any given Tuesday, a political love story. It's out now. Liz Smith, th- thanks so much for your time. Hope we sold you some books, and I'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you for having me, Jay. Good to see you. Coming up next, crime in America and the struggle to get more cops on the street. See just how many officers major cities are lacking as they try to curb a rise in violence. Stay with us. The national lead for the first time in seven years, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives has a permanent director, Steve Dettelbach. He was publicly sworn in today at ATF headquarters. Take a listen. Rising crime, rising firearm violence, rising mass shooting incidents. It's going to take all of us in this nation, in law enforcement, working together to address those threats. As CNN's Ryan Young reports for us now, tackling gun violence will be an uphill battle for the Bureau's new leader as police departments from coast to coast are facing critical staffing shortages. More shootings and more 911 calls have police departments around the country struggling to meet the growing need with departments stretched thin. Kansas City 911, call taker 22. Heading into a busy summer where calls for 911 emergency service spike. Is she threatening or fighting with anybody right now? So, so not only are you dealing with shortages out there in the field, but in this room. The people who work here are working long hours, uh, extra overtime to cover other shifts, but we have to have someone answering the call, so it's a, a critical. The worker shortage is already disrupting public safety around the country, 
by causing delays in law enforcement response times and a reduction in detectives working cases. Where has the American workforce gone? Like, it's like they just vanished. Um, so, and, and obviously police, we're not immune to it. In Kansas City, Missouri, Mayor Quentin Lucas is seeing a shortage across all open jobs, but tells us hiring more recruits in this tough market is a top priority. Things will not be perfect tomorrow. We will not have enough officers tomorrow. But more than anything, that we need to all try to make sure we're helping other folks know that policing is a good path. It is a good pursuit. Law enforcement departments are now offering hiring bonuses as high as $20,000. And some departments have started paying bonuses to keep current officers. In Portland, Oregon, they are short 108 officers. In Dallas, they are short 550 officers, and in Kansas City, Missouri, they are short some 224 officers. While in Atlanta, the new mayor says he has immediate openings. I'm looking for 250 officers and we're finding them. Uh, people are answering the call. They're saying they want to serve their city. One of the challenges now is every police officer, every police department is looking for the same group of talented, motivated individuals that have a heart to serve. So right now we're looking at military bases, always been a step, but also HBCUs. We can't just talk about getting more officers of color. We're going to the campuses, talk to them about policing, about the work that we do. But I think what we do sometimes is we like to wait around for the people at the top to change the culture. Caliber Press, a law enforcement training group, is helping teach police departments. So if we're talking about recruiting today. To reach more applicants. I can legitimately go out there and be the change that the community wants to see without anybody even having to impress upon me what I need to do. That ripple effect of not, of, of the workload and stress that is being placed on police officers has increased to our current staffing as well as what is applying. So we're, we're kind of in a perfect storm right now. Yeah, Jake, that stress is uh, real. On a sad note, we know of three officers who've died by suicide this month alone in the city of Chicago. And across the country, a lot of off days are being canceled for officers as they deal with the summer crime spike. So many questions, so many departments, all in need. Jake? All right, Ryan Young, thank you so much for that report. Coming up next, today's temporary win for Twitter as the social media network takes on the richest man in the world. Stay with us. Our tech lead now, a judge ruled today that Twitter's lawsuit against billionaire Elon Musk can indeed go to trial in October. Musk, who pulled out of the takeover deal earlier this month, is being sued by Twitter for $44 billion. Let's bring in CNN's Alexandra Field. What what else came out of today's hearing? Look, this is an early victory for Twitter. They're getting what they want. An expedited trial set to last about five days in October. They say it's necessary to speed this along because all of the drama over the deal is already creating chaos and uncertainty for their shareholders. They say this is a straightforward agreement that the richest man on the planet is having a case of buyer's remorse after seeing Twitter's stock prices tumble since agreeing to the deal back in April. Uh, Musk, for his part, has said he is pulling out because of a lack of information from Twitter about the number of fake accounts on the platform. In SEC filing, uh, pegs that number at about 5%. Still, his attorneys say they needed more time. They wanted to see the trial start in 2023 so that they could further investigate the number of fake accounts. Twitter will argue in the upcoming trial that it doesn't really matter that Elon always knew about the fake accounts. They were a big reason that he said he wanted to take over the company and that they don't affect the deal because they weren't part of the agreement. Interesting. Alexander Phil, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. 
Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.